Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. We hear a lot about how automation is the future for manufacturing and that robots will be everywhere. When I think of manufacturing robots, it's typically more along the lines of the auto assembly lines, but Robots are being used by many progressive machine shops today, even small ones. I couldn't quite grasp how, and that was a catalyst for having Craig Zoberis of Fusion OEM on as a guest today. Craig is in the Chicago area and comes to the robot world from being a machine shop owner first who hit the skills gap. He then brought a robot in-house and now beyond the shop has a thriving robot integration business catering to job shops. This is a great background to help us as job shop owners get our arms around the reality of robots and cobots today. So we'll even find out what a cobot is. Let's get going. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Craig. Jay, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to share my story with you and your listeners. Uh, There's a good story uh, and lots of good takeaways that I think uh, your listeners will get today. Awesome. I'm excited to dig into it. And in particular, uh, really the robots, cobots, they seem sort of mysterious. So uh, I want to learn more about those and and make it seem like something that every shop owner should be looking at and probably buying. Before we get going, though, you had the privilege of working for and with your father for a number of years before starting your own entrepreneurial journey. What are a couple favorite memories or lessons learned from him? Oh, wow. I can narrow it down to a couple. Uh, well, there's so many. My father had an engineering firm, 75 people. Uh, it was a lot of effort and a lot of uh, work that went into 
you know, keeping that engineering staff working and going. And my father showed me how to manage time and and conduct quality relationships with customers, which was fantastic. And I think that's part of all the success that we have um, is the you know the the transaction of trust. And I think I learned that most from my father's company. And now uh, with all our new customers in in the Cobot integration side of things, it's all about trust, and that's a key thing. And then the second part is is how to manage people and um, mm. how we manage people and change and technology and how my father's company, how they did that. I learned so much from that and it translated into uh, becoming an entrepreneur. And one side note was, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, was your dad upset when you left to go start your own business? And I mm. said, no, I think he was more excited and more proud that it wasn't something just handed over to me, that I started something from scratch to do this. So. I owe my father uh, so much for what he's done for me to become who I am today. That's a special thing to to be able to work alongside your father. And when I started Rapid, uh, my father was retired, but he pitched in and he helped out in a a number of areas. And it was just such a, a pleasure to be able to have that sort of relationship with him. And I'm sure yours was very similar. What type of engineering firm was that? So a lot of it was more mechanical design of products and test equipment and some some automation. Uh, so it was a lot of mechanical engineers and some electrical engineers doing contract work uh, for their customers and sometimes some prototype work. The journey that I talked about pre-Fusion OEM, can you just get into that a little bit? Give us some background of what you did before you started your own shop and, and how that led to you starting your own shop. Sure. So it echoes that relationship that I had with my father's company. So I worked high school summers and college summers. Mm-hmm. And um, and I always said it was like that first 10 years after college was my internship working for my father because I learned a lot of things that went well, things that didn't go well, mm-hmm. but inspired me to, to do this on my own. And um, with a very supportive wife, because we just got married the same year I started the business, um, and then her management skills that she worked for, uh, she worked for Nordstrom and she worked for a, a strong oh. team of, of um, marketing people and PR people. And, and she's, you know, Nordstrom's done a great job of managing their people and customer expectations and things like that. So those are things, those are elements, like the combination of what I've learned from my father's business and, um, and being more inspired by, you know, going into more of a manufacturing side than just an engineering side was kind of my passion. And I, I learned a lot, like I said before, from my father, but also learned a lot from my wife. And she's been always not only supportive, but also how, how to manage other people. And there's a book called The Nordstrom Way. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's got to read it. It's a short read, but it helps you on managing expectations with your employees and your customers. For the listeners who are not familiar with who Nordstrom's is, can you just give a real quick thumbnail sketch? Yeah, Nordstrom is one of the higher end retail department stores that's been around for a very long time. Um, It's pretty much run by their own family, the Nordstrom's, Mm -hmm. and uh, they do an awesome job on everything from, you know, uh, treating their employees the best and um, and, the, and the best wages uh, competitive with retail. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the one of the biggest small companies out there, right? It's got a small company feel, uh, but it's a big company. 
and Nordstrom is like on the higher end of the retailer side of things. So one thing that stuck with me, a Nordstrom story, and perhaps it's in the book, maybe it's not, is they are hyper customer focused and they have a philosophy of giving, I think it's a hundred, hundred or two or a hundred and three percent of customer expectations. But they said no more than that, because if you give a hundred and twenty percent of customer expectations, it just isn't appreciated. And that extra effort and cost and value that you put into it doesn't go anywhere. So they they really want to exceed customer expectations, but they only want to do it by a little bit. And I thought that that's really an interesting way. And that and that's how granular they got in thinking about how to please the customer, but still be able to pay their employees higher wages because they weren't spending that extra money perhaps in, in something that wasn't appreciated. Right. Absolutely. And that's why they have such great customer loyalty. And and I, I believe every business, especially job shops, it's all about repeat business, right? You can't mm-hmm. do single transactions in the job shop world and, and survive. Usually, any first time we do a job, it's easier. We're, we're lucky we break even sometimes, right? We just, mm-hmm. you know, Murphy's Law exists, but it's the repeat customer. And so Nordstrom has brought people to come back into that retail location over and over again because they trust them. And that's an amazing thing. But to, yeah to exceed expectations a little bit, um, mm-hmm. has them come back each time for sure. When you were working for your father's firm, you mentioned that it was more engineering focused and you wanted to get into the manufacturing side. So what excites you about manufacturing? And then how did Fusion OEM start to bring that into reality? So. That's a great question. Uh, so when I was in the last couple of years of working for my father, uh, there was occasions where people would say, okay, great. I love that you can engineer this product for me, but we need somebody to build it. Hmm. And um, my dad and his partner, um, great engineers, um, but they didn't, they didn't, they weren't interested in building the products for them. Mm-hmm. And so I found it intriguing because Um, A lot of the applications that we were doing was like, okay, you engineer this once, right? You transact, right? Mm -hmm. It's one time. And then you go on to the next project. You engineer it, you transact, you're done. What I wanted to look at was one step better, which was that going back to the annuity, we just touched on that with the job shop, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That I wanted to engineer it once and then repeat and get the annual orders or the contracts to repeat, repeat, repeat. So then you could just build a... uh, a list of client base that can be continuous income rather than looking to engineer something over and over. Also, you combine it with risk, right? When we were engineering something new every time, there's always that risk that it's not engineered perfectly or properly or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So there's some unknowns and sometimes it was very difficult to, you know, quote those works that we did for our customers. So I wanted to build up a portfolio of build products. In fact, there's a product we still build today that actually I started the company at when I started in a garage in 2002. We still manufacture the same product, which is pretty cool. So um, so I wanted to build that portfolio. Where are you today in terms of the size of your shop, the capabilities, number of people, shifts, that sort of thing? Right. So uh, we have about 38 people right now. 
count right. Uh, we just hired three more in the last uh, few months here, post-corona, uh, post-corona introduction, I want to say that. We're not done with corona, uh, but we added more. So we were at 38 people. And um, in our back shop here, we have um, all Haas, CNC mills and lathes, mostly mills. And we have a, a CMM uh, here as well with the Zeiss and some other standard auxiliary equipment that we all need, like bridge ports and manual lathe. So, um, but that's how it's made up. So it's a, it's a smaller shop um, and it's a fraction of our business, but it does support everything that we do with the contract assembly and also the, the robot integration. But when you started out, pretty much everything you did, you were making parts. That was your business. That was your thought of what you would do, wasn't it? Well, well really, we started out more of assembly. So we did, ah. uh, so we did more build to print. So I was outsourcing. And so all I had was a garage and a pickup truck. And, and that's how I always, I laugh that it's like, we when, started when with, you, yeah. When you say assembly, can you be a little more specific on what sure. that means? Yeah. So what we did is light assembly. So it was light industrial equipment, some things that you, you know, pretty much the size of a microwave up to a size of a refrigerator I was building. Uh, to print for customers. Mm. And um, I outsourced all the machining to local machine shops in the area. And in Chicagoland, there's tons of great machine shops, um, quality machine shops. And so after a couple of years, after we got you know going, I added the machine shop capabilities because we were getting higher and higher demand for a quicker, quicker timeline. So we just brought it in. Not to say that we didn't do it for less money, or that there was better quality in our shop. We just wanted to control the timeline. And as an entrepreneur, I wanted to be, um, you know, responsive to every one of our customers' needs. And so I could control uh, the workflow and the schedule. Uh, mm -hmm. So we added all the machine shops. It was probably about two or three years, yeah, about three years after when I started putting all our the CNC machines in. Getting back to the assembly, you purchased custom parts. You probably purchased catalog parts. How about the electrical side? Did you, and did you even drop in software code or however that, that gets into a electromechanical product today? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> the essentials was this, <laughs> Jay. So I had one machinist when I started mm -hmm. and this is all within six months of me uh, starting the business. I had to get one machinist in here, uh, one electrical engineer that could do controls design and build mm -hmm. and one mechanical engineer and, and my background is mechanical engineering. I could draw it up a lot, but I needed, I needed some support. So, mm -hmm. so those three guys were very essential um, to us starting, but that, that controls engineer was the guy who he engineered it, built it, wired it into the systems mm. and then we started adding people below each one of them or together with them. So we added more controls engineers, more uh, mechanical engineers and more machinists, but they started with those three. But with your assemblies, were you delivering a finished product or a sub assembly to your customers? Most of it was a completed product. And that's what our customer wanted. They wanted it all the way through QC. Essentially, uh, we got to the point within a few years that most of our products, we would just drop ship it to our customer's customer's facility. Wow. Uh, that's how good we got to it. Um, just so to, you're putting it in boxes and manuals and all those. Everything. You're making so, it yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it was great because it took total ownership 
by us and and that was great and and, and talk about trust uh that we were building it a quality product to our customers' expectations and shipping it right directly to our customer and they're satisfied. So that that was a that was one of our goals and we did meet that. I would assume that delivering a complete assembly would make you quite sticky with your customers, create that annuity that you were seeking because it's so hard to document everything you're doing and for someone to switch to someone else to assemble their product, it would be really painful. For a shop owner who's listening and wants to move upstream, you, you mentioned a, to me a, a key component was that electrical engineer who with the control and, and perhaps the OEM has their design already complete, but at least I would think that somebody has to interpret that. And there's probably some value add that you can make suggestions on how to improve the product for assembly or whatever else. So what would you say to that shop owner who wants to move upstream? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I always feel like, um, you know, you go back to, to echo what you just said before about Nordstrom, that little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and we always said that, like, what can we do here to make this more sticky and, and not elusive. And then, and then there's a, there's a, you got to divide that. When I say elusive, there's sometimes, um, and a lot of the machine shop guys are going to smile when you hear this. <laughs> um, we, you're making the same part for years, right? For, and you're redlining the drawings and updating something here. And there's not the complete, but they're getting the part that they need, right? Mm -hmm. And you might've revved the job like six times since the time you got it, like seven years ago. And they just say, Oh, we can never move this part because you know this one machine shop can only do this part and we knew we revved it and we mm. can't ask them for that drawing right well we always said why don't we be transparent let's make sure they got the proper documentation let's make sure that they're satisfied with it and then go one step further about we can make this more cost effective so one of the key things that we always talked about with our customers is there's maybe a, a way around it Sometimes we were wrong. You know, they will say, no, we have to hold that tolerance. But we always asked just to help them. And sometimes they didn't care, but we we're saying, look, we want you to renew with us. Well, can we make some suggestions here before you renew that maybe you can do a cost reduction? Maybe we didn't need this type of material. We don't know this or that. But sometimes we don't know where the parts are going. But when we, were, when we had um, total control of the whole process, um, we knew where these parts were going we knew our assemblers were doing that. So one of our parts of our ISO standard is that within five days of any build that we did here, we would redline the prints on the, on the assembly floor. It would go back to engineering to be updated and then brought back to the customer saying, look, we don't necessarily have to hold this tolerance or we don't necessarily need to do this or that. And that's where we got the stickiness because my goal with our customer year after year after year was to keep the same price. Mm -hmm. And I know like, you're crazy. And I said, no, because as we know, when we do the project over and over, we lean it out, right? We, mm -hmm. we get better at it, we get more efficient at it, more comfortable with it. So we make better margin on it. So why not share that with the customer? So then what I always said, like we have one project that we had, we were building it for a customer for seven years. We never changed the price. Mm. The margins might've varied a little bit, 
but I was afraid if I increased the price, they would go out for bid. Mm-hmm. So if I told them it was the same price or a little bit less year after year, they wouldn't go anywhere. And I know there's bigger companies that are actually driving so that. Or saying that. I, I just want to jump in and that is a really huge example of being a frictionless supplier. Because mm-hmm. when you change the price, raise the price, you create friction and where they have to go out to bid. So yeah. very, yeah. very clever. Jay, I did it out of fear. I was always <laughs> fearful of losing it. You know what sure. I mean? So, sure. and then, so it's like, I didn't want to be greedy and say, oh, you know, we, you know, why can't we, you know, go 1% higher or one and a half percent higher every year? I didn't, I didn't want to, I, I would say that, you know, and I know uh, in the automotive industry, they always say that, well, you got to drive that price down and everything. Not that I took that philosophy. I just took the fear of like going out for bid. I didn't want to go out for bid. I didn't want them to see it. Plus it was opening up another can of worms because it's not that one project, right? They'll, mm. Then if somebody comes in that does like services and they do it, you know, they might win the other stuff that might be we're working on. So I always, I was just out of fear. <laughs> I love it. You have been so successful that in 2017, you were named one of Forbes top 25 small American companies. A huge honor. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, um, we were shocked. Uh, so when we discovered, we didn't know we were in the running. You don't apply for it. Uh-huh. Um, and so other people that are part of that um let's just say group that have won it before would nominate other companies that they think match that. And it goes back to um, something about, um, I don't know if you heard of Bo Burlingham, how he, he wrote the book, small giants. Mm. Um, and it's about how companies, and there's some great companies, you know, of today um, that just remained small rather than being big and great. Um, they were just great companies that were small. Uh, and our philosophy is, um, you know, we'd rather be, you know, a a great, strong company, um, that we can control and enjoy rather than trying to manage growth expectations. So it goes back to treating your employees well, your supply chain, well, your community and your customers. And those four elements are echoed through what we do here at Fusion. As part of that, you want your team members to contribute and be partners with you in the process. And I understand that Davin Erickson is the best salesperson in your company. Can you tell us what he sold you? <laughs> yeah, it's where we are today. Um, so, um, well, we're all struggling with the skills gap in the machining world, right? And mm-hmm. um, and he's. Uh, younger generation of machinists that's been managing our machine shop and uh as we tried everything i think we made every mistake in the book on how to train our personnel so um we were we were struggling to figure out the best ways to train and uh davin erickson was um randomly sending me instagram posts and youtube videos and any kind of um, information on these collaborative robots that were doing machine tending for our Haas CNC machines. And I, I, I didn't even have Instagram, Jay, so, so now I do. <laughs> um, but, um, but anyway, it, 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 was, um, it was just showing us this technology of you know, taking parts in and out, like loading up the, the CNC, unloading the CNC day in and day out. And I was really confused. I said, 
we're trying to simplify things and now you're coming in with more technology mm-hmm. and it's going to be more difficult uh, for us to train up. And, and he said, I'm, I'm not trying to make it more difficult. I, I, I think you have this wrong. And I said, well, how do I have it wrong? And he said, look, we just need a buddy on the machine shop floor. And I said, okay, um, why can't we just have this robot loading and unloading parts all day long while the next generation of machinists, let's call them the millennials, um, can then work with the baby boomer generation before they retire, which has got this wealth of knowledge. And instead of them doing the machine tending and thinking that they're you're increasing their skills, let's go let them shadow the other uh, generation of machinists so that they can increase their ability to be machinists and be be better at their craft right away. The suggestion then was to buy a collaborative robot. And if I understand correctly, Cobot is short for that or slang for a collaborative robot. What he kept sending you Instagram posts. What prompted you or what was the catalyst for you to say finally uh, you, you described it a little bit but say okay I'm going to spend I don't know how much money they are but I'm going to actually invest in one of these for my shop what what was the tipping point well the tipping point was going back to you know his argument about saying look you know why don't we have somebody train up you know work closely or we can even put them in some other training room while while the production's running because I, I misunderstood it. I thought that when you're loading and unloading parts all day long, that actually they learn because they're basically measuring the part, they're mm-hmm. changing and making adjustments in the, the program. And I thought that was enough. But knowing that part was key. And the second part was, you know, I really wanted to invest more in the technology side of things. I just didn't want to sit flat footed. And, and I know there's machine tools are getting better and better, um, but trying to take a paradigm shift um, moving into something that's a little bit different, another way of looking at it. The cool part about it too was the whole team was on board with this. Mm. And well, so this didn't come from me. And usually this comes from a management's perspective. Obviously it was a foreign idea to me too. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion coming to me was like pushed back initially. And then when I saw you know, what could be done by those, those posts, combined with the enthusiasm of our team, which was, you know, I'm very lucky to have. Uh, so I said, why not try it? And, and then that comes back to embracing, you know, um, ideas that actually come from the production floor. Uh, it doesn't always have to come from management. Mm-hmm. And, and that was key. And that's part of our, you know, our core DNA is that, you know, we're going to try ideas. And, and like you said, you know, we're going to give it a shot. And we did. And we root Goldberg it and we had some success right away. What type of robot did you buy? Uh, it's called the Universal Robots uh, Collaborative Robot. And it's built in Denmark and, uh, and it's distributed throughout the United States. What year was that? That was 2018. So relatively recently. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what was the investment? Oh, I think the robot was about $40,000. And you say you Rube Goldberged it. So <laughs> I know we're going to get into this because you are now, and we'll define the term later on as systems integrator for robots uh, coming into shops, but you didn't use a systems integrator. You figured it out yourself. Is that how I understand it? Yeah. So, <laughs> we, well, 
our machinists didn't have time to do this, um, to integrate it, but we were, again, fortunate and we're a little bit of a hybrid, right, uh, where we have an engineering department. So our engineering department embraced it. So they learned about the needs as like our machine shop became our engineer's customer. So they said, what's the expectations here? And what do we want to do? What are you trying to do? So the engineering department, um, which, you know, they're not focused on doing engineering for the machine shop. They're doing engineering for our other customers to engineer new products, right? So now they were on this and Davin and his team were the customer. So it was unique. And then they said, let's, we called it an MVP or we call Rube Goldberg, but MVP is minimal viable product. Mm-hmm. And yes. so we said, let's do the minimal viable product to prove that that's there because we're using our own funds. We don't know where it's going to go. Um, it, we could just totally, you know, can the project and not go anywhere with it. And I'll tell you, it was hard at the beginning because we didn't have the systems in place and we didn't know what was going to happen here. And all our machines were busy. You know, we were booked, right. you know what I mean? Like now you're going to go in there and you play laboratory in there. It was hard to do. So, so sometimes we had the robot in there then we had it out. We had it in, we had it out. We re-engineered it. We did this, we did that. And then going back to like, I'm saying we made every mistake in the book, but sometimes we went down the wrong roads on it. And, but now we finally have a, a, a standard process and that's when we became an integrator. So we'll get into that later as well. How long did it take till you felt that the robot was contributing to productivity and profitability on your floor when you got past uh, the, 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 the stop and goes? Yeah. I, you know, I got to say it was about three to five months um, with a lot of the stops and goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it took that's still time. relatively fast for mm-hmm. somebody figuring it out themselves. And I know, mm-hmm. let's just throw it in there. If someone purchases a cobot and has fusion OEM help do the system integration, how fast are people getting up and going now? Yeah. So, so instead of three to five months, it's more like three to five days. So, uh, we, you, yeah, so that's, that's why, you know, we, we changed the strategy here and added, you know, that type of service uh, of being a systems integrator to help provide this same automation solution for exactly the same kind of a job shop. We get it. We understand and we know what you're going through. And, and way, why we went after it, too, is because it was the same reason you just touched on. It's like it took us three to five months. People don't have that time. Right. And then this, this robot's going to collect dust. And you're like, then you hear the same thing in the world. Oh, yeah, I tried those robots. They, they don't work. You know, and like, oh. Because no one was really committed to it. Before we started recording, you had talked about that there are seven wastes on the shop floor, and then the robots actually play into an eighth waste. So can you just tell us at least some of the seven wastes, just to frame that, but I'm more interested in that eighth waste that the robots help eliminate. Yeah, so we always talk about the, the seven wastes that we know of and they're pretty obvious ones like transportation non-value-added movement of parts mm-hmm. waiting when people parts and systems or facilities stand idly while we're waiting for a cycle to be completed overproduction you know producing mm-hmm. outputs more quickly or in greater quantities than the customers demanding defects uh, inventory accumulating leftover raw materials or work in progress or finished goods, movement, unnecessary movement of workers, materials, and equipment, extra processing, performing additional work, even though it's not required by our customer, 
Mm-hmm. Those are the first seven that everybody knows about, right? But the eighth one is key, and that's what you're leading to. Yeah. It's it's underutilizing human potential, and it's when employees are capable of making greater contributions, yet prevented from doing so because of other tasks they need to do or perform, which is what that unloading parts and reloading parts is underutilizing human potential. It's so important that you know you have that. It's hard to find that steady Eddie in your shop that <laughs> shows up every day with a smile on his face, does that job. Those are hard to even find just people with the right attitude, right? right. So what do you want to do? You, you reward them with pay and continuous work, but you also have to reward them with learning another skill in there, more skills, uh, make them more valuable to you. This generation, the new generation of machine shop uh, people are demanding and requiring, even if they're sometimes choosing jobs that pay less because the management's going to invest in their ability to learn that craft. So that's the key to the reason we did this is because of that one waste. And I'm going to read a quote, I think I got it from your website, on whether these cobots are taking jobs, owner Tom Richardson responded, it works in reverse. You have better, higher skilled people. It gives them a lot more purpose and they see the earning potential. Instead of mundane tasks, they learn to program these types of robots. So their job level really goes up. We run our cobot 11 hours a day. It never gets tired, never complains. So this is a way to retain the folks in your shop and it's a way to attract new people into your shop you want to jump on that yeah um tom richardson hope he's not listening he's in his 70s and he's investing in this uh technology he could be close to retirement and usually you always see the machine shop owner oh i'm not gonna invest in it i don't know how much more longer am i gonna go and this and that and tom is committed to it and the reason, you know, it kind of triggered things with us was that he looked at this because, again, we have that skills gap. We have trouble trying to find entry-level people. Attracting new talent to work for your company, showing new technologies is bringing in a, a better applicant mm-hmm. and an applicant that finds you more appealing because it's a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you always think you're interviewing that person. They're interviewing you. But if you show them that you're committed to doing more to automate, it's very attractive. The other part of it, Tom even incited it, who's a customer of ours, he even mentioned on the retention side of things. He's like, yeah, these guys don't want to do this. I could, I could lose these people if I keep on bringing these, these boring jobs out. Mm-hmm. And we call it the, the, the 3Ds, Jay, um, in machining and, and all of the things that the collaborative robots are doing is the 3Ds, which is the, the jobs that are out there that are the dull, the dangerous, and the mm. dirty. Mm. Not Okay, a lot of machine shops are not really dirty. They're not terribly dangerous. The CNC tools are pretty safe, but they're dull, you know? And, mm. and people, you know, say, oh, I want to do something a little bit more exciting, a little bit more personal. Now, there's a small percentage of your, your, your population that do work for you to just you, you're even shocked. They're like, oh, I love doing this all day long. You know, <laughs> and I'm like taking parts in and out. There, there are out there, but the majority, you know, I'd say 80, 90% of the people are yearning 
to do something more advanced in your machine shop. Yeah, their human potential is underutilized. Could you give us a real specific nitty gritty example, a, a case study or two, um, perhaps one of how these cobots, what they're actually doing in machine tending, describe that and then maybe at one of your customers. I wanna really understand where we can put these cobots in. Yeah, um, so and the listeners out there probably are you know, looking at lathes and uh, mills possibly as, you know, places that they can automate. Um, most of our first wins, we call it, the ones that we know uh, we can install quickly. When I say we, uh, us and the customer that we sell to, they'll look at lathes. And, um, and what they'll do is set up a part and we have these, this equipment so that we can like take your, you know, pre-processed parts, set them up into an array um, like like eight by eight array, the parts are sitting there. Uh, and then the robot would just pick one at a time, place it in the chuck and, you know, wait for the process to be completed, remove it from the chuck and then place it on a finished goods cart and repeat. A lot of the applications, a lot of the wins are with lays because you got the chuck in there that's automatic. Mm -hmm. Move to mills. Uh, before, the we, mill. before we move. Yeah to mills. So I got some questions. How does the robot talk to the lathe? So it knows that it needs to load and unload. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, so every CNC machine is different. Uh, believe it or not, a lot of them have been robot ready. We just don't realize it. Uh, mm -hmm. There's um, circuitry on the back of the board, you know, the, the, of the machine, you know, where there's a, you know, IO board inputs and outputs mm -hmm. that are there that we can grab the signals. Combined with M codes, so we always say it's a, mm -hmm. you know, um, M finish, um, so we know that the cycle's complete. Um, so it's a combination of some hardware that does reside in most CNCs, or it can be added on to the CNC from the, the manufacturer of that CNC. Also, the M codes <laughs> sometimes are just, they're built in. It's just that you have to unlock them. And there's some small fees that are associated with that too. So believe it or not, for decades, these machines have been quote unquote ro robot ready because of these commands that in, are in the software and the hardware is already in there. And, and that's, I'm sorry, one more thing too on that too, Jay, is that, um, before I forget, that's where we, we come in. As an integrator, we're the ones sure. that, determine how to best make sure we can communicate between the robot and the CNC. Is this a physical cable or is it wireless? Oh no, it's all physical. Yeah. And what we do is we also tie in like the emergency stop, you know, so the robot is meeting all kinds of OSHA codes mm -hmm. uh, and the robot uh, Institute association standard for uh, robot safety. Where does the cobot get mounted? Do you, you, clamp it to the machine? Is it clamped to a, a, a table next to? Because I, thinking of pictures I've seen, these aren't, these aren't human size cobots. They're more like an arm. So how, how do they physically get in yeah. place and then are rigid enough so they don't move? Because I'm, I'm sure that that's an important part of them right. correctly. Yeah, yeah. What's important is repeatability, right? So mm -hmm. we have to have that. Um, so we have a, a stout base um, that the robot arm mounts to. So now you mm -hmm. have those 
relative to each other. So that's where we pick the parts out of this, you know, where this table or this base mm -hmm. and it's relative to the robot. So the repeatability is perfect, right? Mm -hmm. We usually anchor it to the floor um, and then we allow for the arm to reach into the cavity of the machine to the, get to the chuck or to the vise or mm -hmm. whatever. But we also make an allowance too that the robot, when it, we're setting up the machine or going into the cavity of the machine, that it's clear. So meaning that we strategically place the robot in a position so that if you have to do a process manually, Mm -hmm. Or if you have to consider like going in there and changing tools or, or finding out what's going on or clean out the chips or whatever, a human can get in there. So we're always leaving about 30 to 32 inches of shoulder width to get in there to uh, make any adjustments inside the machine at minimum. So I have a cobot tending my lathe and now I have a new job come in and certainly you can't call Fusion OEM every time to have you program that new job, what's involved with programming the robot God. to do its job? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the nice part about what we have here is, first of all, we, when we do an installation, Jay, mm -hmm. we teach you how to fish. Um, we're hoping that you never have to call us back to reprogram. That's our goal. Mm -hmm. um, it's always uh, challenging, but we do all the training on site. Um, there's also some online training that you can do before our training come when we come out to do the training. Um, additionally, the 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 software is um, done with a touch screen, so it, you can tell that when you look at this thing, it's more what we understand in the machine shop world, more conversational language. Mm -hmm. So it's like you know drag and drop uh, kind of a concept of features of how to, to teach the robot. There's also one more really exciting feature, and it's called free drive. So you can actually hold down a button and you can move the robot by hand to teach it. Hmm. And then you can store those parts of the program. Um, and it's optimized with the software as well. So they're doing everything possible to make it easier for you to reprogram for a new job. I like that. So they're giving you multiple ways to get the robot up and running and they're not forcing you to do it in a way that might not be intuitive to you or the programmer or even an operator perhaps can can get to that level yeah and, and to add to that too is, is it's really interesting too because um there's software updates they're free and you're mm -hmm. so used to like having um, the other like cam softwares that are out there, or CAD softwares that you got to update, they're constantly updating the software. It's just like your smartphone, how they're updating it and it's coming out with more clever ways of doing things. So it's only getting better and better and you, you only paid for it once. So that's a nice feature too. I want to get to Mills, but I have another question. Do you integrate the cobots at all with machine vision? Yes, we do. So machine visions, um, it's amazing. It's like kind of like Moore's law, like the technology has gone up significantly and the price has come down significantly. Mm -hmm. So uh, whenever we find that there is some, we want to find the part, you know, in an array, um, we can use vision for that. Mm. Um, we're not using vision yet on like inspection or anything that always comes up. Uh, we haven't, but there's ways of doing that with auxiliary pieces of equipment, but uh, we haven't 
come into one of those applications just yet. But vision is very key to the success of robots. Mills, where where are they being used with mills? So on the smaller mill sizes, so if the uh, and and look, we're a Haas uh, facility, mm-hmm. and uh, we the VF2 is one of the most popular CNC mills that are out there on the machine shop floor. I think I heard that it might have been the most. Um, I guess it's the most popular one that Haas sells of the mills. And so they, it's kind of like the right size for a collaborative robot. So, cause all our collaborative robots, um, they're limited on payload capacity, which is like five kilograms or 11 pounds okay. or 22 pounds uh, or 10 kilograms. So a lot of the parts that normally like a human would pick up or less mm-hmm. uh, would be placed in there. And most of the parts that we're seeing that our customers are using collaborative robots for, most of the parts fit in the, the palm of your hand. Um, and because they have a lot of, you know, that's are like production run parts that they use on these smaller mills. It's kind of a, a intersection of that type of machine, the, the robots capabilities, the production runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's where we fit with those mills. Um, we also offer our customers and where we've done a lot of testing on different types of vices because they have to be automatic now. You can't, right. you know, you can't go and crank on a curt vice and, and lock it down, but you can automate a curt vice. Hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of other suppliers out there that have air uh, uh, actuated vices, um, air over hydraulic and hydraulic vices. Which can be controlled with in collaboration with the robot and the machine. So the, the electrical signals are making the air turn on and off and, and, and do its job. Exactly. Is the cobot faster, the same speed or less speed than a human putting a part in and out? Oh man, this comes up a lot. So um, to make a collaborative robot um, collaborative is that it, it it's basically running at a slower speed, right? Uh, so we get into this argument, uh, you know, a lot where, you know, hey, you know, is this going to be just as fast as an operator? If you look at an operator and they can load and unload, it's kind of like the Hawthorne studies when somebody's watching you do it, they yes. do it super fast, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so everyone says, oh, it takes my operator only, um, you know, 18 seconds to unload and reload. I'm like, okay, what's your output at the end of the shift? Oh, well, I don't have that. Um, let me get that for you. I'm like, great. What's your time duration for the CNC to machine the part? Oh, I'll get that for you too. So they get this information and we'll show them that, you know, when you take out the lunch breaks, the mm-hmm. breaks, um, and what's really efficiency, because guys aren't working on your floor uh, more, you know, like maybe let's say optimally 80, 85% of the time, right? They're not distracted. They're not doing something else. So what we've proven that we can do just in a normal shift, um, with that certain efficiency, we're about 26 to 30% more efficient on the output side. 26, 26 to 30%. Yeah. That's not in counting for like, say you want to run past that shift. Um, and most of the places that we sell to are single shift machine shops. So they're sneaking out three or four more hours 
after the day has ended. And we do the same thing here. Um, in fact, just last night, since I live closest to the facility, I'm here at nine o'clock at night, shutting down the robots because they ran four more hours past the time the last person was here. So people left at five o'clock, I got four more hours of production. So we yield now on that product that we are machining right now, nearly 44% better productivity rather than it just running through a regular shift with an operator at the, at the machine. Do you have a comparison of cost of a human tender versus the cobot tender? What are the potential cost savings? Yeah, um, so we kind of work that to what we'll call a, a return on investment. Mm -hmm. um, most, most of our um, single shift machine shops are between 11 and 13 month uh, break even. Um, the, the, the two, the two shift machine shops, um, they could be about six to eight months, uh, return on investment. So the cool part about it, it's paid for, right? Right. And, and now you're really making money because now it's like, it's almost like you paid the operator to work for you for six to eight months. Right. And then after that eight months, it's free, you know? So look at it that way. I, I look at the cost, but I also want to get back to just the underutilization of human potential. Now you have someone who was a tender who has some basic skills, but probably more importantly, knows the culture of your shop and you can put them in a higher value role within your company. You don't have to teach them about your company. You may have to teach them some more skills, but that's much easier than trying to hire someone who is an unknown and I, I just think that this is not a win-lose this is such a win-win for shops and this is why I'm so excited to, to chat with you today how about some lessons learned when implementing cobots at shops <laughs> well yeah lessons learned so um, what I always suggest is that you know you can't just bring the robot in and it just goes right mm -hmm. just that so there's so many steps that you should do, not insurmountable, but when you talked about culture, that was key, right? So one of the things that I always have to say is, look, it's humans first, robots second. Mm -hmm. So there's been times when we uh, walk into a, a, a shop and it looks like they're concerned about talking about the robot in front of the other person. And then on the other side of the continuum, I walk into a shop and there's an operator standing there like, yeah, we're talking about the robot and the, in, in, in the, in the operator smiling because he's he or she are done with this. You're like, I want to do something else. Right. So the lessons learned is that you got to have management buy in. Right. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. The second one is to communicate that to your team that are going to be affected by that. You know, you're not going to lose your job. We're going to find something more exciting for you. You have better earning potential now. This is what's happening. So that's like a lesson learned, right? Mm -hmm. So meaning that you have to have that. And I'm not saying that I was, I said earlier in this podcast that, you know, I was fortunate enough that my manager, Davin Erickson, along with him, his team were on board with this. They were super excited. Not, that doesn't happen everywhere. They don't, they, these guys got it. I was very blessed to have that. But sometimes you walk into these shops and, and they feel like their job is threatened. 
Mm. And especially right now, it's such a sensitive time, you know, about, you know, this, this income level of somebody that does machine tending in the facilities. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have that communication immediately. And if you don't do that, don't bother putting it in. Wait until you've done that homework or, or done that, uh, had that conversation with your team and, and, and then leave it open. Let people bring back what their feelings are and, and keep that open line of communication. Not saying this is what we're doing. Trust me. It sounds like a politician. You know, just trust me. It's, everybody's going to be fine. Nothing's going to harm you and everything. Have a plan for them. Hey, uh, Joe, Jane, um, you're not going to do this anymore. This robot's going to come in and you, what you're going to do is you're going to do inspection. Oh, okay. Or you're going to do um, programming or we want you to learn CAM software. Oh, great. When is that happening? Oh, well, this is going to happen in November. Fantastic. We got you signed up. Fantastic. You're executing. You're not giving a bunch of, you know, uh, big words that say, you know, it, you know, we're, we're automating and we're going to, we're not, we're not going to take away your jobs or this is something that's actually going to actually happen and they see it and then how is it going to affect me? That's so important. It it is really important because everything you said here, people might think, all right, the lessons learned. And first thing Craig's going to talk about is something about how the robot connects with the Haas or the technical side, but you just, we're talking about the people and and this is really in a, in a we're implementing technology but it's a technology that again it's a win for the people within your shop but it needs to be presented correctly and you have to when you say management buy-in management's really got to buy into making sure that the team is going to have opportunities and it's probably not going to go well if you think you're going to be able to have less people in your shop because the the folks aren't going to appreciate that and and it's not good for your culture right well and it it brings up an excellent point there have been case studies um and also personal experiences of people that implemented automation traditional collaborative robots whatever it might be and they've actually increased the number of people on their production floor because they won more business and and they've done more with less on the floor mm-hmm. but they've created more opportunities by putting more equipment in there to take over more business and and what a lot of them talked to me about what they were worried about is they're talking about sustainability and I'm not talking about environmental sustainability. Companies are coming into machine shops right now and they're asking, what are you doing to attract talent, retain talent? We know that we're losing more machinists now to retirement than ever before. What are you doing so that when I come next year with another new order that you're still going to have you're still staffed properly to meet my requirements. So that's, that's something that's going on. It's just touching on things on sustainability. Sometimes it's part of like AS9100. Um, it could be started and be an ISO standard that they're going to say, what are you doing for your workforce um, that you're going to be here 
in the future because people don't want to move from one machine shop to another, but they might have to because you can't cater to their needs. So what are you doing? Well, we're investing in this automation. We're putting collaborative robots on machine tending. We're training up our, our personnel that we're, we're, we're happy with and we can trust. And now we're moving forward. And that has to give you, uh, I guess you make you help you sleep well at night knowing that your customer is going to return with more orders. It brings me back to a basic principle. If you are not growing, you are shrinking. <laughs> and this seems like a easy way to make sure your shop is growing. And when you see that the amount of people are increasing, well, the amount of people are increasing because your revenues are increasing and likely your profitability is increasing too. So this all goes hand mm -hmm. in hand with the, the mm -hmm. growth mindset. What are some of the biggest objections that you get from shop owners and why are they valid or not? Uh, yeah, um, there's so many different ones. Um, they're never like the same. Uh, you know, like one of them is we love to introduce the technology, but we just don't have the time to implement. Meaning like, hey, I can't take this machine down for a period of time and get you up and running. And that's why, you know, we exist, right? So we come in there, we make it easy for them. What do you so do they, exactly as a systems integrator for Cobot? So we'll, we'll go out there, do an assessment of what they need. So we get the right sized product in there, right sized robot for the application. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll actually do all the like customization or tailoring to their, to their needs. Mm -hmm. We'll do a risk assessment, which we do the safety risk assessment because collaborative robots um, in OSHA, um, anytime you're going to have an uncaged robot, you're going to get, um, you're going to get fined. Or that, like, you're going to get not fined. You're going to get basically notified that you got to get that thing caged. But if you show them a risk assessment that was completed, because hmm. um, they, they actually make you guilty until proven innocent. Right. Um, so you got to show them that you did your risk assessment. So we do the risk assessment for you. And then a lot of our machine shop uh, customers don't even know what a risk assessment is or was. And so we would do that for them so that they're, they make sure that the, the product is safe for their employees and meet the OSHA standard. Um, then we, what we'll do is build it. Um, we would deliver it in our own trucks to the facility, mm -hmm. integrate it and install it to the CNC. Then we would train and then we would run their first part production and then, then we're decide if we're going to give them the keys of the robot. We want to make sure that they're comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Most projects take about three to four weeks to um, before delivery uh, to get it out to the customer site. Our standard solutions, mm -hmm. and in about five days uh, maximum, that we're on their production floor with a combination of the integration, training, and running their first part production. If an owner gave you an order today for their first cobot how long would it take for that whole cycle to get the robot in for you to do your your three to four weeks the five days what what do you just so someone can plan maybe they're thinking i want to bring one of these in in 2021 what's what's that whole timing look like right yeah you know i think you know from initial conversation like a phone conversation and by the time we assess everything to the time we are 
out of their facility delivering something, worst case is about six to eight weeks is what we're looking at. And that's with like doing something that is ever so slightly tailored. But if there is an engineering requirement, like, oh, we got to engineer something specific and there's a process with it, that could add a couple more weeks as well. So you have these robots in stock? No. So the cool part about universal robots is that um, they're built on demand out of Denmark. Okay. So they they actually arrive within five to seven business days. So oh. we have those here ready to go. The systems that it, the bases and like all the other peripherals and effects, we do stock that. But the robot, we don't. You are in the Chicago area. So any shop owner who's in Chicago can contact you and if they're interested with cobots and start that conversation. But what about someone who is in LA or Texas or the Northeast? What do you suggest to them to get started? Oh yeah. So there's usually another integrator out that way too, that you can always use. To how do you find that. a good, how do you find a good integrator? Um, well, I would reach out to Universal Robots and find, um, you know, you can just go online and, and, and put your information in there. Someone will contact you and you just tell them what you're looking to do and they'll suggest a local integrator for you. Um, the other thing is if you're if you're considering like, you know, just inspiration to do it yourself or, you know, we have a, a ton of, of videos on YouTube. We show what we've done for our customers. We show what we've done here. And even if you, somebody's just looking for help, they can reach out to me directly as well. And um, also, if you like to do it, is you can. Um, we have a video of the week that goes out every Tuesday, uh, so um, just for inspiration as well, uh, just to get a good feel. And then they can reach out to me, and if they and I can talk about um, you know our our friendly competition, we can suggest the ones as well. I appreciate you making that offer and. For the listener, we're going to go longer on this podcast because I just felt that there was so much that we wanted to get out about the cobots and robots. But Craig is also doing some really cool stuff in a couple other areas, and he just mentioned one of them, which is YouTube. So I'm going to we've talked about on the podcast before how social media and YouTube is one of the channels creating content is the way today that you market. It's not sending out blasts of emails or putting ads in magazines per se. You have been on YouTube for 10 years and beyond that you have posted consistently which I think is very important. There's a lot of folks who get gung-ho with their social media whatever the channel is and they'll do it for three months and then you don't see anything. You'll look and the last post was two years ago. So you've been doing it consistently for 10 years. I went onto your YouTube channel and there's something, more than something for every year, as well as you mentioned the weekly video that goes out. So what got you started with YouTube? How do you do it? Why do you do it? Just talk to us, I'm a shop owner, and, and I'm probably not going to do it myself. There's got to be someone in your organization who just is into this sort of thing. But in particular, have you gotten business out of it? And th those sort of things. Let's, let's jump into YouTube. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I feel like we stumbled onto something really great there. Um, 
as you mentioned, we did it like over a decade ago that we started posting YouTube videos. And the philosophy was, because um, we were, again, struggling with getting new hires. We were growing really fast um, and we just couldn't fill positions. And the notion was that, well, you know what? Let's separate ourselves from the other assembly and machining and engineering companies out there by showing them what we do. Because if people see what we do and see the other people they could work with, they can wrap their mind around it. And, you know, like, like it was a, you know, like when you see a job posting, you know, you just see this thing, you know, listed in, it might be cleverly written. It could be funny. It could be interesting, but it doesn't show you, doesn't get any feel for it. And YouTube is this free product that's out there. You're like, holy smokes. So we would start creating this video content of what it would look like if you worked for our company. It's like, so what's the engineering team look like? Well, we hired a reasonably priced videographer and he specialized in what? Documentaries. So they kind of were like documentary type field. They weren't cheesy sales scripted. Nothing was scripted. Hmm. What was scripted were the questions we were asking our employees. And so we would have one of our people here that just asked the questions and the videographer would go like, say there's like 10 questions, Jay. Mm -hmm. And they just answered them. And one, maybe one person said, question answered question three really well well we would actually put that out there but we made it so it was interesting we also kept it to 45 seconds we try to keep everything like 45 mm. seconds was our goal someone went over some were shorter but we wanted to share that so when my colleagues saw this they're like wow this is great what's the goal here is it to hire people or to find new business and i'm like both Right. You know, because here's the other thing. If you can see these videos, you know, if you're a customer or a prospective customer, mm -hmm. you're looking at it, you're like, huh, I like to work with these guys. These seem like right. reasonable guys. It's not a transaction, you know, and I never wanted to be a machine shop that was like the lowest price because um, I never and we're never the lowest price. But we are. We're kind of like going back to what we said before. We might be the Nordstrom, you know, on the other side. We're giving you quality service that you can trust. That you're gonna get, we're gonna meet your timeline and meet your expectations. We don't win on price. So this is, I think, a really critical point in how you're using YouTube. Trust is usually gained after people start interacting, but you are using YouTube to generate trust to get someone, a customer, to engage with you. So you are actually working to create that trust up front. And most traditional marketing will not do that for you, or certainly not in the way that a video will. So that, that is really fundamental in a modern, when you've been doing it for 10 years, but that is the way that, that the, the world works today in most other fields. And now we see manufacturing coming into this world and starting to use these. So sorry for interrupting, but no. what, what other ways uh, has this evolved? Yeah. Um, so yeah, over that period of time, we were, like you said, we were consistently creating content um, and just so people can get to know us better. We thought that would enable the, you know, um, let's say um, add fuel to the, 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 
process of the sales process or more importantly the hiring process you know because mm -hmm. we wanted people to get a feel for it yeah um and then and then when we got into the collaborative robots going back to like hey i was sent instagram posts i was sent mm -hmm. videos of this and even even if it wasn't just for us to sell um that's important right you know like okay it's gonna help sell us that hey these guys know what they're doing look at they they, they can mm -hmm. they can automate a mill or a lathe or a press break or whatever they got it and we understand now but maybe there's somebody that just wants to be inspired by the technology and maybe not even utilize us i think we owe it to the community of machine shop owners so that we can be globally competitive and i'm i'm such i'm so bullish on u.s manufacturing so if we can show them and it's not like super secret trade secrets here that are going on here just show them what we're doing and get inspired by it and do it because we got inspired by somebody else's so i think it's like that reciprocating back with somebody showed that technology let them show let us show the the world what we're doing as well and you've moved it so that you actually are consistently putting out a weekly video who does that are you still hiring a videographer no now we're just you know thank god apple does a great job of you know integrating cameras and we just simply just videotape um you know video now i'm showing my time uh but record uh yes. exactly you know what the the robot's doing and just giving a snippet on it and letting people get inspired by it so so basically we're just using our iphones any suggestions for shops who want to start with youtube Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you put the, the channel together, use it when you promote, right? So, you know, after you created your channel, put some random videos in there. And people, people aren't looking for, um, let's say, exceptional quality, you know, you know, mm -hmm. think about some basics, you know, worry about the, the sound and the noise and, you know, like basic stuff, right? So it's not annoying to listen or watch the video. And then then promote it. You know, like like I said, we 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 put the link in our posts when we were looking for people to be hiring, mm -hmm. and also you know you even put it on your email signature uh, on you know ah. when you send it out an email, just be like, hey, check out our you know you know we're hiring, check out what our other engineers are saying, or yeah. um, so we randomly always move it, always change it, and just you know use that as a mechanism too, because everybody wants to click it. I think everybody's intrigued by a short video. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's, you know, you got to keep it short though. Um, and you can't keep, you can't be scripted. Um, and you know, people see right through it and it's uncomfortable to even watch sometimes. One of the videos that I saw, which goes into the showing the culture and the people of fusion OEM was of a morning daily huddle. Mm -hmm. And I want to transition from the YouTube to what I saw in the video, it looks like you have a formal process for meeting structure within your company. What is a morning daily huddle? What gets covered <laughs> there? Why do you do it? Sure. Um, so every morning at 8.07, and you're going to be like, 8.07? Not, why not 8 o'clock? Well, 8.07 makes sure that everybody's on time. So every standard meeting that we have in our company are on odd times. So we've had the daily huddle at 8.07 mm -hmm. and we bring the company together 
and we start with good news. What's the good news? Um, and everybody can share in the good news. It could be business good news. It could be personal good news. It's just kind of like this, what's good, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it could even be this like, did the local sports team win uh, a playoff right. game or whatever it might be. And just to bring a positive attitude to it. Uh, then our department managers would go around about the projects that are on the floor and they would talk, they would allow others that are assigned to that project to give an update on it. Also, it's a time where people could say, you're bottlenecking me in a nice way, right? Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. you're bottlenecking it. So basically it's the accountability part. So, so Jay, if you and I are on the floor and I, and I might say, um, you know, this is the update of what's going on. Uh, I, and you might, you might chime in and say, yeah, Craig, that's great, but um, you owe me this information. Everybody's heard it. So it's not just you and me. Everybody. You don't want to be the one getting called out. Right, right. And it, and, but it's a very positive way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's that kind of like the accountability side of it. And it's the ownership side of things. Everybody sees that what they're doing, because everything starts after the day gets going, everybody starts getting siloed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a way of getting everyone together. Um, so we do all that. And then we also give out any updates, like if we're going to have visitors that day, who's coming in, why? Because sometimes people walk in and they're like, who's that? You know, and the scary one is always when the <laughs> come in with the suits on and the tie and everything. They're like thinking, oh, we in trouble or something like that. So I'll say, hey, our banker is doing their annual visit. They're coming in just, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And also um, when they know it's a customer, you know, they'll engage. We talk about like these, we always talk about this um, where you want to engage eye contact at a certain distance. And when they get closer, you know, introduce yourself. Um, well, it's COVID now, but we usually would say, okay, if you're this close, reach out, shake their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now we're, you know, hitting elbows. Um, but, uh, you know, we have that, you know, we reiterate that part. Um, we also use it when, because um, we're ISO and AS9100, you know, we'll, we'll go through some things that happened. Like if there was, you know, certain things that went wrong, things that, you know, we needed to write up as, you know, uh, there was a problem, you know, it's brought up at that huddle. And then we end it um, with an inspirational quote. Uh, I, I'm a big, huge inspirational quote guy. When you come to our facility, we have them on all the walls throughout the company. Um, and I would just recite that. And then now we just brought in dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> or dad business jokes. So those come in too. But a lot of people ask after they've actually experienced the huddle, because we always encourage other people to come in. We have our customers come in. Um, colleagues come in, get inspired by it and they'll, they'll walk out of here and they're like, do you think everybody's getting everything that's going on? I said, yeah, no. And I said, but if anything, we all got together for a little bit and it was kind of a community type thing. It's like when they always say breaking bread or whatever, you know, it just brings you together, but just bringing everybody together sets the tone. So it's like sometimes technically nothing got like better, let's say in the schedule or anything from that perspective. But we got together as a team one time each day, and then it sets a tone for the rest of the day. Well, that was actually said on the video by someone on your team. They said it fosters community. That, that was the, the quote that they said, creates team. And so, as you just said, even 
if nothing else, it's creating that camaraderie that we're all in this together and then everybody can break and do their siloed activity but not feel like they're alone. And mm -hmm. I have to laugh because when you mentioned 807, we used to have our executive daily huddle at 1007 every day ah. because I am chronically late by a couple minutes and I didn't want to mess everyone up. So I had on my calendar, we had a 10 o'clock daily huddle and that gave me a little buffer time. Makes so much sense. And it actually worked really well because we, we got everybody on mm -hmm. and it didn't waste anyone's time because for whatever reason, instead of 10 o'clock or instead of eight o'clock, having it uh, at an odd number makes, yeah. makes it happen right then. Are there any other meeting structures that you've implemented within your company because what you're talking about with the daily huddle sounds like something that came from the Rockefeller habits or scaling up. So are you doing something like that? Yeah. So we, we have like the, the, we, we're a big Vern Harnish, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rockefeller okay. habits, uh, company. A lot of our basic principles are in that, you know, with our core values and, you know, our one page strategic plan and giving rhythm to the organization and having those meetings in place. Um, so those are those are important to having some sort of structure um, that, um, you know, attractions out there, which echoes, you know, like everything that's out there as well. There are um, tools and then there's also EOS, they call it uh, entrepreneurial operating system type implementers that can help you customized solutions for your organization if you just don't know where to start. Yeah. We use scaling up. We started when it was the Rockefeller Habits at yep. Rapid, and it became scaling up. Vern mm -hmm. rebranded it. And I'll give a plug out for our implementer, Petra Group, Petra Coach out of Nashville. Mm -hmm. They were super in helping us make it happen. So Andy Bailey and his team. Yep. Andy's awesome. I crossed paths with him several years ago. Um, but yeah, it's, it, that's, that's a good team to start with for sure. If you can get them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, that's the key is if you can get them because they are <laughs> top notch and they're, and they're not inexpensive, but the value more than pays for that. Relating to that, you belonged at one point to entrepreneurs organization. Can you share what that, is all about why you joined it and the value you got from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was a member for a very long time and um, I have lifelong relationships with them. And, you know, people have heard of like YPO, which is the young president's organization or WPO world mm -hmm. uh, president's organization. But EO is similar in nature um, where you have a community of entrepreneurs um, locally and then globally as well. And EO, um, Entrepreneurs Organization, I can give you a direct relationship from something I learned from EO that has been implemented into our business. And it might have not been like from an EO event. It might be from the other person. And, and I think we learn so much from other entrepreneurs. And one of the things that entrepreneurs do, they can't help themselves from helping others. They always want to help. They're like, you call them up and they're like, oh my God, I want to help you, you know, or, or you're, you're just together in a group. You're like, I did this and it worked and I did this and it didn't work. And everybody wants to share that. Um, and then the other thing that was really powerful is that you get these small forum groups 
and they could be with eight to 12 approximately other entrepreneurs that you meet uh, uh, monthly. And you're able to present and share where you're at and where you're going. And there's this thing called the 5%, which I think is very powerful. Mm -hmm. I, and what the 5% is, it's unique. Um, it's the 5% that you wouldn't just talk to the average person you know about something really good or something really bad. And it's a place and an outlet of confidentiality. We call it forum confidential, mm -hmm. um, where you can share in these things. You know, maybe you have problems at home or problems with work or you're just problems yourself or you're just super excited you're like oh my god we just killed it but you just can't go to like your neighbor or your best friend or sometimes you're like sometimes they're not all the way up in at that level but you want to share that excitement and and that's just an outlet for you uh, but i've molded my business i molded myself around eo and i'm always indebted to it albeit i'm not part of it i still have I, I, over a hundred strong relationships with people um, that, you know, pop up throughout the year that I'm always in contact with. I belong to the Boston chapter for quite a while and echo what you've just said. It is a tremendous organization. And I think one of the values for a shop owner is that the other people come from so many different industries so you get perspectives that you just wouldn't think of of asking for somebody who owns a restaurant somebody who mm -hmm. owns a construction company somebody who owns a software company mm -hmm. and they're all entrepreneur owners so they share the same dna as yourself and it's just a great community. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, if, if it's not EO, get into some kind of a group that you can always yes. just talk with. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Um, but you, you're right. Um, it doesn't, it, sometimes it's better that you're not in your own industry. Yes. You know, like you always hear about, oh, the machine shop owners get together. That's great that you, you learn something there for sure. But sometimes, you know, I'm a machine shop owner, it's nice to hear what the software company is doing or that construction company is doing or, you know, that, um, you know, cleaning company does. It's like mm -hmm. you'll get something from it. It, it, it some, some of the stuff is actually always, uh, you know, transferred. Particularly on the people side. Mm -hmm. everybody, oh, everybody is hiring people and has a team and... And challenges, right? And, and, then, yes. and that's the other thing, too, because we're all humans. You're, you're dealing with humans all day long, you know? Mm -hmm. If this is an engineer or if, if this is a construction worker or if this is – they're all human. And how do you deal with other people? And I mentioned that earlier in the podcast. I learned how to manage people better from my wife, and, and I learned from <laughs> her. And she was in the, in, in the retail industry where they're sell, selling high-end products, you know? Right. But how does that translate to a machine shop? It translates. It does. It does. Yeah. Well, Craig, I think we have set the record for the longest podcast, and <laughs> it was so much fun. I could keep chatting with you for even longer. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It was super helpful in understanding how robots and cobots can be useful, even in a small machine shop. And I wish I still owned a shop so I could buy one and experiment <laughs> with it. 
I love what you're doing with the daily huddles and with scaling up work for us. Kudos for the YouTube work, being innovative there. All really good stuff here and so many nuggets. I hope people listening are just inspired. Anything else you want to throw out there or share before we wrap up here? Well, yeah, if, if anybody wants to reach out to me, please share, you know, some way in your podcast, you know, my email address and go ahead, give uh, it to us. Oh, it's, um, it's C as in Charlie, Z as in zebra, O, B as in boy, E is in Edward, R, I, S, at fusion, O is in Oscar, E is in Edward, M is in Mary.com, C Zobaris at fusionoem.com. Please reach out to me. I, I love to share things with you. Even I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm I'm just an entrepreneur that loves sharing our successes and hope that people share their successes with me as well. And it's a complete honor, Jay, to be here with you and 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 doing this podcast with you. And thanks for having me on. And thank you. It was uh, yes, so inspiring. And <laughs> I'm going to throw out to the folks listening. Do you have a robot? Do you have a cobot? If you do, tell us in the comments how you're using it. And as Craig said, we're all in this together. And the more we share, the better we all become and the more globally competitive we will be. I'm extremely bullish on U.S. manufacturing as well. And that's why I'm investing the time in this podcast. And my ask today is that you share, however is comfortable to you, a lesson from your own school of hard knocks. We all have them. We can learn from our own mistakes, but it is better to learn from others so we can make our own new mistakes. Until next time, let's keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and those cobots tending. Have a super day.